0: Well, we're going to look in particular at Article 8 of the second head of the canons of Dort, but first I'd like to read with you John 17. Now, John 17 um, comes really just before the crucifixion, the arrest and crucifixion story. Um, if we look at this in context, the, uh, the Lord's Supper happened John, well, really John 13 through 16, right? John 13 is the the washing, when Jesus washed their feet. And then, starting in John 14, He speaks to them after supper. He explains what is going to happen in terms of His arrest as far as what that means for them. How that is to be understood by them and how ultimately it will be beneficial to them. And then, we come to or chapter 17, and we find Jesus' prayer, what's often called his high priestly prayer, because he's praying not just for himself, but for his people. Our Savior says, when, or the, the text says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. Now, Article 8 in this second section of the Canons speaks to us of God's purpose in sending His Son. For it was the entirely free plan and very gracious will and intention of God the Father that the enlivening and saving effectiveness of his son's costly death should work itself out in all his chosen ones in order that he might grant justifying faith to them only and thereby lead them without fail to salvation. In other words, it was God's will that Christ through the blood of the cross by which he confirmed the new covenant should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to him by the Father, that he should grant them faith, which, like the Holy Spirit's other saving gifts, he acquired for them by his death, that he should cleanse them by his blood from all their sins, both original and actual, whether committed before or after their coming to faith, that he should faithfully preserve them to the very end, and that he should finally present them to himself, a glorious people without spot or wrinkle." Amen. Congregation of God, beloved through Christ. If you were to come into my home and enter my study, or into my study here at church, you'd find quite a few books. No surprise, right? Many of those books are filled with absolutely excellent theology, Encompassing everything from the bare basics of who God is and who man is and how we're saved to the minute details of election and covenant and how those concepts correspond to time and eternity. Between those two offices and their bookshelves, there's easily more theology than can be digested by the average man in a decade. But that's just the smallest fraction of the theological works that are available, even just in our language. Each year, Solomon's words from Ecclesiastes 12 are proven anew. Of the making of many books, there is no end. But most of those books, not so much in my study, but in general, probably should never be printed. Because you see, it's natural to the heart of man to desire to think God's thoughts after him. That's a good thing. Having been made in the image of God, having been made to reflect God to the world, it is natural that we should want to know more about him. To know what his purposes are. What is the outflow? What is the outworking of all that he has accomplished? What does he have in store for us? And how should we respond to that? That's a natural thing. However, because we are corrupt in sin, we take that natural and good desire to know God and we tend to twist it. Wanting to understand God in ways that either justify us in our rebellion or that so modify subtly, carefully what the Lord has done, that it gives us a greater place, a greater glory. This is something that the church has fought throughout history. As theological works come out, as theological teachers ascend to prominence, who seek to give man, very subtly, very carefully, very convincingly, seek to give man a more prominent and indispensable role in salvation. Some have claimed that Jesus died to make salvation possible for everyone, but it's on men to decide whether he died for them, whether they would accept it, whether it would be effective in their life. We call that Arminianism, and it is taught in many an American church today. Others have said that God knew who who would be saved through Jesus' work, but it was merely a knowledge of decisions that men would freely make on their own. Again, Arminianism. But then it's gone beyond that. Because bad theology, false theology, never rests in its badness. It always extends it farther. And so more recently, we have theologians who claim that God doesn't, in fact know who is going to be saved. When he sent Jesus to the cross, it was to make salvation possible, but he had no way of knowing, because the future is still future, he had no way of knowing whether anyone would actually accept the invitation and come, whether Jesus' death would actually be effective for anyone, or whether he would throw a great party that no one would attend. And of course, there have always been multitudes who claim that Jesus' death, it it went part of the way, it did some of the work, but now we need to add to it, we need to complete that work, and if we don't complete that work, then Jesus' work is a waste. Now folks, every single one of those teachings, and that's just a slight smattering off the top, every one of those represents a denial of what God has clearly said in His Word. In each case, a task attributed in the Bible to God is reapplied to man. And that's why we need Article 8. Because Article 8 takes us back to the basics, calls us to dive deeply into God's Word and says, why did Jesus come? Not what did he do. Not exploring the various details of what he accomplished, but asking at the very start, hold on, what was his purpose in coming? What was his goal in acting? What was God's intent in sending his son in the first place? And what we see is that God sent his son for the sure purpose, for the sure purpose of saving the elect. And folks, every single word of that is packed. With significance, God sent his Son for the sure purpose of saving the elect. That's our theme. And Article 8 teaches us this by emphasizing the goals God had in sending Jesus. In other words, the the purpose isn't to show us how he accomplished it, but why he did it. And so Article 8 starts by talking about the entirely free plan and the very gracious will and intention of God. When it uses that language, it's taking us out before creation, out before time. Kids, you understand that time is a created thing, right? Before the world was created, there was no time. There was eternity inhabited by God, period. We can't even wrap our minds around that. But they're in eternity, before there was a world, before there were men, before there was time itself, God decreed everything that would come to pass. Understand, if He didn't decree everything that came to pass, then He's less than God. Because that means that there are some things that are outside of His control. Some things that surprise Him. Something that is greater than Him. And that can't be. Or He's not really God. And so he decreed in eternity that he would create the universe, including our world. That he would do it in a particular way for his particular purposes. He decreed that into that world he would insert men and women. Mankind who would bear his image as a unique crown of the creation. And he determined that man would have a measure of freedom which he could use to serve God perfectly or to rebel against him. And he determined to allow man to use that freedom to sin. But then also to save some of those who had plunged themselves, who would have plunged themselves into destruction and judgment to save them. And he he ordained all that would be required for that salvation. All of that is what we're talking about when we refer to God's purpose, His will, His sovereign counsel. So when Jesus came, that eternal purpose was the why. He came to fulfill all that God had planned out in eternity. Which means that when He came, when He was born to Mary in Bethlehem, He came with the intention of paying the full price for all of God's elect. He came to do everything necessary to ensure that all of God's plan was worked out. And we see that A reflection of that intention of Jesus in this prayer that he prayed. This passage is unique because it allows us to hear at great length God the Son addressing God the Father concerning the work that he had come to do and had almost at that point completed. What's he say in verse 4? I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. How many times previous to this in John's gospel does Jesus not remind his disciples, I came to do the will of him who sent me. I didn't come to do my own will. I didn't come to outwork my own plan. I came to do what the Father sent me to do. And so he says here, what was the work that he was given To give eternal life, verse 2, to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That was the work for which Jesus was sent, and it was that which he had at this point almost completed. Now our text from the canons goes on to describe that work in the way that we experience it, so that we can recognize the significance of what Jesus came to do. And the first level of that saving work is purchasing faith for the elect. Because without faith, whatever he did is out there, right? Kids, you understand, you understand what faith is. Faith is a knowledge of what the Bible says about Jesus, believing that knowledge and trusting in him to apply those promises, to apply that work to us. That's faith. And faith is what unites us, what joins us to Jesus. And Jesus says in this prayer that he accomplished that faith. He brought that faith for his disciples. Verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Verse 7, Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. Verse 8, I have given them the words that you gave me. He gave them all the knowledge they needed to have faith. And with that knowledge, he taught them to believe. Verse 7 says emphatically, Now they know that everything you've given is from me. Verse 8, I've given them the words and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. And having taught them to believe, Jesus taught them to trust. Not sitting them down in a classroom, but taking them out in the wilderness where there was no food and then multiplying the little food they had so that it could feed 5,000 men plus women and children. Sending them out across the lake while he went to pray to the Father up on the hillside and then meeting them most of the way across the lake, having walked across the surface of the water as only the one who is sovereign over the creation can do. Taking those who were sick and nigh unto death and bringing them back to health. Indeed, raising up from the dead those who had already succumbed. In so doing, he taught them to trust that not only what God said was true, but that he was the one who came from God as God to accomplish it all for their good. Jesus brought to them the faith that they needed and not to them alone. Verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through through their word. Jesus planned to use those disciples whom he had already brought to himself in order to spread the truth and to spread his faith to others throughout the world. And Jesus says he will continue to grow the faith of his people. Verse 26, we hear Jesus tell the Father, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So his work of forming faith in his people is a work that continues. It's a work that continues in each one who is brought as he deepens and strengthens and broadens our faith. But it's a work that he continues as he spreads the faith to others. When we joyfully see one of our young people come forward to profess faith, as we saw this morning. That's a demonstration that Christ is continuing to do this. He's continuing to work faith in the hearts of those who are His, those whom the Father has entrusted to Him. And as we see new people come into the church who didn't grow up with this truth, who didn't grow up worshiping God, and they take hold of it, and they confess it, we see Christ continuing to draw in the elect and to impart faith to them. It's hard to overstate how essential it is to know that Jesus purchased faith for his people. Scripture says that without faith, we, we don't have Christ. We're not united to him. His work is not for us. But Jesus, he tells us that faith that we need, he gives us. John 6 He says, this is the will of the Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up at the last day. Faith is essential. And then he says, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus draws to Himself as a work of the Father those whom the Father has entrusted to Him. All of our salvation, even the faith that unites us to Christ, is His work. And folks, what that means is if you trust in Jesus, that itself is an assurance to you. Jesus came to accomplish that. And so if you've learned to believe that what we read in the Bible is true, if you've learned to trust that the one whom we read in the Bible did it for you, that's His work. That's something he has accomplished in you. And he who began this good work will not stop until it is brought to completion. And having brought us to faith, he completely pays all our debt. He completely ends all of our estrangement from God. The angel told Joseph in Matthew 1 verse 21... You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus himself said at the Lord's Supper that his blood would be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's the second thing he came to accomplish, is to purge the sins from his people, from the elect. But understand well, Jesus intended to complete that work. He didn't come to make salvation possible for some people, hypothetically. He didn't come to institute a divine line of credit which people could, you know, go through the steps to apply to themselves. When Jesus hung on the cross, it wasn't an undetermined amount of sin that he intended to pay. When he hung on the cross, Jesus knew whose sins he was sacrificing for, whose debt was being paid, what the cost truly was. In no sense was his death accomplished for an undetermined number of sinners. Nor did he pay the price for sins up to a certain point, leaving the rest to us. That's what the Roman Catholic Church believes. They believe that that Jesus' death paid the price for all of your sins up to the point of baptism, but sins committed after baptism, well now you have to do something. You have to do works of penance. You have to pay part of that. You have to suffer for some of that. That's why they believe you have to go to purgatory. You have to suffer some. No. No. When Jesus was on the cross, he said it is finished. And he meant it. The work was entirely and completely done. And that's why he came. Isaiah 53, justly famous passage, proclaims the good news of the servant who was to come to save God's people. To Israel, To Israel, Isaiah writes of this long-promised servant, saying that, He would be pierced for our transgressions, for ours. He would be crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him would be the chastisement that brings us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. He says, the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And He adds... That he is stricken for the transgression of my people. In other words, Jesus came to pay the debt, all the debt, the complete debt for all of his people. There would be nothing left for us to do. No debt left for us to pay. He did it all. In fact, verse 11 of Isaiah 53 says that because of what he did, many will be made made to be accounted righteous In other words, not only does he leave us at point zero like Adam before he had done either good or bad, no. God looks on us who have faith in Jesus and not only does he see all the sins paid for, but he sees us righteous in his sight, bearing the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah 53 leaves no doubt. Jesus came to pay the absolute full price to make us righteous in God's sight. And we find that same thing Constantly repeated in Scripture, Jesus paid the price completely. The people must add nothing to be justified. Nor is there an expiration date on that. When you come to trust in Jesus, when you put your faith in Him, all the sins you have committed, all the sins you are committing, all the sins you ever will commit are forgiven. Your debt is fully paid for all time, period, and a sentence, full stop congregation of Christ, the significance of that is immense. It means that we have absolutely no need for fear concerning our standing before God. How many people wonder, have I done enough? Have I done enough to be regarded Okay in God's sight. We don't have to to wonder that. We know we haven't. We haven't done anywhere near enough to be rendered righteous in God's sight. Left to what we've done, we deserve nothing but hell. But it's not left to us. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's entirely the work of Christ. And because he did it all, we can go to death absolutely confident. We can say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain, is gain. Because to die is to enter into the presence of our Heavenly Father where he will receive us, seeing Christ in us and saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. How can we not rejoice in that? And that's why Jesus came. To give us faith, to join us to Him, and to pay all the price of our sin, but not that alone. You see, when Jesus came, it wasn't just about forgiveness. Because forgiveness is about removing the consequence of sin. But He also came to remove us from our sinning. To take us out of this pit in which we're wallowing. Some of you raise livestock. It's a delight to me to go to the, uh, the county fair and see so many of our young people there showing off their animals, eager to tell you more than you ever knew there was to know about hogs or sheep or goats or chickens or whatever they have. But I see their frustration too during the week. They're getting ready to show these animals. They're taking great pains to wash a chicken. You ever wash a chicken? And as soon as they get the chicken back in the cage, what's it do? It makes a mess, right? Usually just before the showtime. And that's a chicken. It's much different when it's a steer, right? Or a, a hog. And that's what we do. Christ cleanses us from our sin, and we're so quick to go right back wallowing in our misery, in our brokenness. But he loves us too much to leave it with that. He loves us too much to allow us to continue entering in to that which will make us miserable. Kids, do you understand that? Sometimes we look at God's commands and we think, "Oh, that feels so restrictive. That's what the world tells us. Well, God doesn't want you to be yourself." Well, no, He doesn't, because our self is pretty miserable. Sin is miserable. It's self-hating. It's self-destroying. We don't see that when we're in it because we're covered with mud. But when we come out of the mud, we feel so much lighter, so much more joyful, so much more at peace. And so Jesus came to take us out of the mud too, perfecting redemption in us. And that's the last thing. This is a weakness uh, that we see in our society, uh, almost inherently, with our criminal justice system. You know, I've talked about that a few times in our uh, morning sermon texts as we look at some of those case laws. Israel didn't have prisons because a prison isn't redemptive, right? You stop the person from sinning. You force him to pay a measure for his sin, but nothing's happened to change him, has it? And so what happens? Ten years after the, the burglar or the thief gets put in jail, he gets let loose. Or maybe five years or two years. And what's he do? Well, nothing has changed about him. So he comes out and he has no way to make a good living. He has no desire to make a good hard work living. So he goes out and does the same thing that got him put in jail in the first place. He steals something. Or he sells drugs. Or he, whatever the crime might have been. Because... hasn't changed. The criminal justice system calls that recidivism but recidivism is where we all are because all we've known from the start was sin and so Jesus came to make that different, to change that. We see that purpose of Jesus acted out in the story of the adulterous woman. John 8 the Pharisees bring to Jesus, it's a trap of course, they bring to Jesus this woman who has been caught in adultery because they knew that the law commanded that a woman caught in adultery, anyone caught in adultery, was to be stoned. Interestingly, they only brought the, man, or the woman, but not the man, even though they said they caught her in it. But whatever, they bring her, uh, and it's a trap. Because if he says well, the law says stone her, we need to stone her. Well, the Jews didn't have the right to do that, and so they would be condemned as criminals for having stoned her without the authority of the Roman judge. But if he says, well, don't stone her, well, now he has contradicted God's law. It's a trap. Jesus doesn't fall into it, right? He points out that they're not fit to be judges, that they all deserve God's judgment. And so the woman is left without any judges to condemn her. But Jesus doesn't just let her get, go free, does He? No. Verse 11, He says, Go, and from now on sin no more. You see, that's His purpose for us. Go, but from now on sin no more. And Jesus' prayer in John 17 is absolutely filled with that purpose. He prays, first of all, that God the Father will protect those who follow him. Verse 11, he says, I'm about to leave this world, but my followers will remain in it. So he says, verse 11, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one. Verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. What's that mean? Would the evil one want to destroy them? Yes. Yes. But you know, Satan doesn't strive to destroy us, first of all, by persecution. He strives to destroy us, first of all, by assimilation. If he has to destroy us through persecution, he will. But he'd much rather get us recruited. And so Jesus prays, protect them from the evil one. Guard them from the one who would drag them back into the mud. Verse 12, he says, that's what I've been doing. I've been protecting my people from Satan. So he asks the Father to perfect and to complete that work, applying the protection that he purchased. And then he prays for sanctification, that the people might be changed and made holy. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And he says, I've already done some of that work of sanctifying them. So verse 19, for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. This was his purpose. That his people, having been saved from their sins, having been brought to him, might now be transformed so that more and more they reflect him. And then he prays for other perfections that his people need. He prays, verses 21 through 23, for their unity, that they might build one another up. He prays, uh, verse 24, that they might see His glory, so that, verse 22, they might reflect His glory to the world. All of that, understand, Jesus had already earned. So now He's praying for the Father to apply it, perfecting their redemption by that which He has already done. So what's that mean for us? Folks, it means we can have confidence. We can have confidence in our justification. Jesus, as we saw in the Lord's Supper, Jesus completed the sacrifice. He did it for us to bring us unto life. But we can be confident too in our sanctification that God will lead us out of sin, that God will more and more renew us into His image because Jesus paid for that too. And Jesus right now is praying, even as He prayed in this prayer, He's praying in heaven for us, that God would apply His work to our life. He's praying, young people, He's praying at times that you'll get caught. That you'll be embarrassed, that your sin will hurt, so that you'll see the the misery of sin and you'll turn from it. He's praying at other times that your conscience will be pricked, So that you'll desire help in escaping your sin. He's praying at other times that God will send a particular friend, a particular counselor, a particular elder to befriend you. So that looking on them, seeing how God has worked in their life, you'll desire that for yourself. Jesus right now is praying. We can be confident of that, that the Father will apply His work to sanctify us, to perfect us, so that at the very end, 1 Thessalonians 5 is beautiful, It calls us to a life of sanctification, to a life of praying, to a life of trusting. It ends, abstain from every form of evil. And then it reminds us that it is the God of truth who has called us who will do this. And he will bring that work to completion in the day of Christ. And that means today we strive for sanctification, but we don't do it trusting in us. We don't do it resting in our strength. We do it looking to Christ, praying for his strength, confident that he will complete the work he's begun in us. God sent His Son for the sure purpose of saving, completely saving, all of the elect, all whom He has chosen. Trust Him to do what He was sent to do and live to give Him thanks. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what would we do were it not for the work of Christ? We would of all people be most to be pitied. But because of the work of Christ, we can be confident that everything he accomplished will be brought to pass in us. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for perfecting his work on our behalf. Lord, bring that work to completion. Allow us to see it more and more working itself out in our lives that we might live to give you our praise. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.